0: The Nature, Government and Function of the Church A Reassessment 2001 Kuyper Foundation Taunton, England Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey Appendix A Some Problems with Presbyterian Ecclesiology Although it is clear that councils of elders were the New Testament form of church government, this should by no means be taken as implying that Presbyterianism which claims to embody this form of church government, has faithfully represented and accurately practised the biblical principles of church government in all the particulars of its denominational system. Nor does it mean that other denominations not espousing Presbyterian ideology have failed completely to represent and practise the biblical principles of church government. The reality is more complex than this, It is evident that independency and congregationalism are too atomistic. Complete independency between churches is not a biblical ideal. Nevertheless, Presbyterianism, on the whole, tends to be too centralised and bureaucratic and gives to presbyteries and synods a degree of power and authority that cannot be justified biblically. I have argued in this essay that the biblical model incorporates elements of both these positions, but not in the extreme forms in which they are usually encountered in the ecclesial dogmas of either of these denominations. I also maintain that, in practice, these extreme forms break down and that most non-episcopal churches refer to functional episcopacy at the local level and sometimes even at the regional level. There are, in addition to this, however, a number of problems relating to Presbyterian ideology and practice that represent serious failures to understand and, as a result, constitute departures from the biblical doctrine of the Church. Furthermore, in their denominational polemics, Presbyterians have often sought to advance the Presbyterian cause by means of appropriating to themselves alone, as distinctives of the Presbyterian way, doctrines that are held by all major Protestant denominations. This inevitably involves the misrepresentation of those who do not hold to Presbyterian ideology. Such polemics and the misrepresentation that accompanies them are a practical denial of the doctrine of Catholicity. The following is not meant to be an exhaustive or systematic critique of Presbyterianism. It is rather a series of long notes to points brought up in this essay. 1. It is not unknown among Presbyterians for the Church to be defined in terms of elders. For such there is no Church unless there is a plurality of elders, and the visible Catholic Church is defined exclusively in terms of the institutional Church. In terms of primary definition of the Church given in the New Testament, the Body of Christ, this position is untenable. But such a definition also fails to find validation in Scripture as a description of the institutional Church, as James Bannerman, a Presbyterian himself, has argued. Even in the cases of two or three professing Christians met together for prayer and worship, whether publicly or in private houses, the term ecclesia is applied to them in the New Testament, and that, too, before such a congregation might be organised, by having regular office bearers and minister appointed over them. In the Acts of the Apostles we are told that Paul and Barnabas ordained them elders in every church, as they journeyed through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, language which plainly recognises the congregation of professing believers as a church, even previously to the ordination of office bearers among them. The body of believers in any particular place associating together for worship whether numerous or not, have the true character of a Church of Christ. This statement is in accord with the definition of the visible Catholic Church given by the Savoy Declaration of Faith. The whole body of men throughout the world professing the faith of the Gospel and obedience unto God by Christ, according to it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, are, and may be called, the visible Catholic Church of Christ, although, as such, it is not entrusted with the administration of any ordinances, or have any officers to rule or govern in, or over, the whole body. 2. It has also been claimed by Presbyterians that the term ecclesia in Scripture may stand for the eldership. There are no proof texts to support this notion, though it is not uncommon to see texts pressed into the service of this idea by means of specious argument. For example, James Bannerman, who argues for this identification of the eldership with the ecclesia as one of the several meanings of the term, gives only Matthew 18.17 as a proof text. But this is begging the question, since it would have to be shown first from the context or from other scriptures that this is what the term ecclesia means. Neither biblical nor lexical evidence will support this notion and Bannerman is reduced to arguing that in the expression, the church, which he, that is, Christ, made use of, the Jews who heard him, must have understood the authorised rulers as distinct from the ruled to be the parties who were to determine such controversies. It should not need to be stated that what the Jews understood is hardly to be considered definitive in the Christian Church. They understood very little. But, in any case, it should not be assumed that what Bannerman thought the Jews understood by the term Ecclesia is, in fact, what they did understand by the term. His identification of the synagogue court with the Ecclesia, that is, his identification of the synagogue court with the Ecclesia, has support neither in Scripture nor in the literature of the period. Moreover, it is philologically impossible. Both the secular and religious uses of ecclesia show that the term means an assembly of the people, that is, an assembly of the citizens of a state or of the congregation, the people of God, not an assembly of officers or court of elders. Indeed, it is the ecclesia of the people that elects the officers of a church or city-state. For example, in Athens, it was the ecclesia that elected the officers, not appointed by lot. The Greek ecclesia was an assembly of the full citizenry of the city or state. Its use to describe a council of elders is without precedent and far-fetched. Bannerman's argument is a classic example of eisegesis, that is, the reading into the text of one's own assumptions which then becomes the axis around which one's interpretation of the text revolves. 3. It should also be observed that the above citation from the Savoy Declaration, the independence version of the Westminster Confession, gives the lie to Bannerman's assertion that independence repudiate altogether the idea of a visible church sustaining a real, although external, relation to Christ and composed of his professing people it is incumbent upon all Christians to represent their opponents accurately in debate. One would have thought that Bannerman would at least have had the moral integrity and intellectual honesty to read the most important of the independence confessions before he had so calumniously misrepresented them. Perhaps Bannerman had no intention of trying to convince Independents of what, in his opinion, was the correctness of the Presbyterian form of church government and contented himself with slapping his fellow Presbyterians on the back. But this was not the first apologetic for Presbyterianism in which a doctrine that is held by all major Protestant denominations was claimed as a distinctive of the Presbyterian way, and it certainly was not the last. It is unfortunate that Bannerman should have perpetrated such false witness against other believers in the first few pages of his book. Such arguments are not likely to be found convincing by independents and bring the scholarship of those who espouse them into serious disrepute. Some may conclude that if Bannerman is a false witness in such an obvious matter, he is not to be trusted elsewhere. After all, it is not as though the independents' views in the matter were unknown and their beliefs difficult to ascertain. Such a judgment would doubtless be less than justifiable but not altogether inequitable. Such misrepresentation, let us call it what it is, a lie, is not uncommon in Presbyterian polemics against those who disagree with Presbyterian ecclesiology. For example, James H. Thornwell perpetrates a similar calumny. The second theory is that of the independents who virtually deny a Catholic Church. A related problem in many Presbyterian churches is the sectarianism and idolising of Presbyterian tradition. For example, I have heard it said by a teaching elder in one Presbyterian denomination that prides itself on its adherence to the Westminster Confession of Faith, that, as a member of this church, one may not teach a doctrine that is contrary to the Westminster Confession, even if it is biblical, because the Confession is the constitution of the Church, not the Bible. This is not only idolatry, but, ironically, unconfessional also. The Puritans who framed the Westminster Confession never intended it to be used in this way, and specifically included a section disclaiming such infallibility for its deliberations. All synods or councils since the Apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as an help in both. The Westminster Confession was never meant, by its framers, to be a test of the faith, but rather a testimony, a help to the faith. To use it as a test of the faith is idolatry, and flies flat in the face of the testimony of the confession itself. Scripture, not the Westminster Confession, is the irreducible dogma a point that the confession of faith makes abundantly clear. The supreme judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions, of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. 5. Furthermore, Despite the fact that much is made of strict subscription in some Presbyterian churches, what functions as the standard of orthodoxy is not the Westminster Confession of Faith itself, but rather a particular interpretation of the Confession, which may, in places, be quite anachronistic. In the case of small, ultra-reformed Presbyteries, whose strictness, sectarianism, has led them to a virtual independency This may be the interpretation of one man or a small group of men, whose inability to tolerate any deviation from their own opinions, institutionalised as the correct interpretation of the Confession, has created a kind of functional episcopacy. Presbytery, despite much braggadocio about Presbyterian principles, then becomes merely a rubber stamp for a new kind of Protestant prelate. The Presbyterian principle of a council of elders, drawn from the wider fellowship of churches to determine issues of doctrine and morals, is negated by such small presbyteries. The convening of a presbytery under such circumstances is a mere facade, since the true meetings of minds is made impossible by the sectarian attitude and practices of the dominant personality or group. Any dissent from this prevailing opinion may result in disciplinary action and thus the presbytery shrinks in size yet again. The end result begins to resemble a cult in which the idiosyncrasies of one particular person or cultural subgroup are idolised and scripture becomes a subordinate standard of the confession or rather a subordinate standard to a particular interpretation of the confession. Even where these problems do not arise, it is arguable that such small sectarian presbyteries contravene the principle of a multitude of councillors on which Presbyterianism is supposedly founded, and thereby make a mockery of the doctrine of Catholicity, which is emptied of all meaning and content. Presbyteries of such small numbers do not constitute viable or legitimate presbyteries, even in terms of Presbyterian ideology and doctrine